0: Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Lieutenant Colonel Karen Kwiatkowski, a Pentagon whistleblower from the early Bush years leading up to the Iraq War, joins us to discuss the War in Gaza, U.S. foreign policy and the U.S.-Israel special relationship, blowback, and her experiences in the Pentagon, where she says she witnessed the corruption of intelligence by ideological actors. We'll be discussing all that and much more in the conversation to follow. Let's get right to it with Lieutenant Colonel Karen Kwiatkowski. A note that there's one minor detail I get slightly wrong here. I was talking uh, about maybe less than halfway into the interview about Elliot Abrams and a prediction he made about Hamas. I said it was two weeks prior to the attack. It was actually around 10 to 11 days before the attack in statements he made advising Congress. Also note that Karen and I don't necessarily agree on all issues. We have a little bit of a difference in our political opinions, but I think her insights are quite useful. So with that in mind, let's get right to it with Lieutenant Colonel Karen Kwiatkowski. Welcome back to Parallax Views. A guest, guess I'm very happy to have on. Uh, I followed her work. Uh, When I was in my teens, she was a whistleblower that exposed the, you know, what I would call the neocon agenda within the Office of Special Plans. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Karen Kwiatkowski, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: Karen, if you could, uh, what is your general assessment of what has transpired from October 7th when the, uh, you know, really terrible attack happened by Hamas to now with this siege of Gaza, the horrible bombing campaign that is, you know, just taking the lives of so many innocents, including children and women. Uh, what's your assessment of what has transpired?
1: Wow. Well, obviously a tragedy on many different, uh, sides. Um, you know, starting with the October 7th thing, uh, you know, the events of October seventh, very shocking. And I think um, most shocking to Israelis because um, it's a small country with uh, enemies that they accept around the, you know, everywhere, that they accept that they are surrounded by enemies. I think that's pretty much uh, the Israeli concept. And they have a strong military and a strong defense of their borders. And what happened on the 7th, in the South particularly, really uh, was um, unexpected by uh, everybody. Particularly, Israelis who live there and Israelis who were who were visiting there, they expect the army to be with them, and it wasn't. So um, that was it was a tragedy, a surprise, really, for most people. Um, and I think uh, in this in the subsequent weeks and m- the months that it's been since October seventh, um, I think the Israelis are asking a lot of hard questions of their government: Why were we not protected? And again, uh, you know how we. Uh, I think Netanyahu said this is our 9-11, and of course, many in America say this is very similar to our 9-11, and what it reminds me of, and of course, I was in the Pentagon during 9-11, and I think what it reminds me most of is how little protection your governments um, can really provide you and do provide you on a routine basis. They talk a big line, but they really don't protect you, and they certainly dropped the ball 9-11 in America. There's no doubt about that. Uh, The ball was completely dropped. It was buried um, and then, in, I think the Israelis uh, feel much the same about events of October seventh—an un- inexcusable uh, lapse on the part of their own security services and their government. So that that is um, something that uh, will stick with them. And after the war and the whatever they're planning to do with Gaza, and I, we can talk about that more um, once that's done with, um, Israelis will question their government and they will demand better. And better may be more peaceful and it may not be more peaceful, but it will definitely be something that the people of Israel demand of their government that they did not receive on October 7th. So that's October 7th. And yes, you know, men, women and children, people of all ages killed on the 7th. And then in the retaliation, we're seeing um, 10 times right now we're at 10 times, Uh, I think uh, 1,400 people, soldiers and civilians killed on October 7th of Israeli side. And we are over 10,000 some soldiers mostly civilians and uh people of all ages killed on the palestinian side now and it's ongoing so uh is that an overreaction is it overkill what is it um well it's, it's pretty terrible is what it is um it it ref- the, the the way i look at what happens in israel and of course i'm no expert on it but americans aren't none of us are okay that's one thing we need to be aware of even israeli americans um are not experts on it. They think, they may think they are. They may feel uh, a kinship of some sort. We all love Israel, but we don't understand anything about what goes on. Israel, the state of Israel, has lived in a, basically a state of constant war. So this is not, they call it the War of Gaza, or the war, but I don't know what, the war against Hamas. I'm not sure what they're calling it. But to me, it is very much conflict on a continuum. Um, what we're seeing is kind of like uh, sunspots. You know, this this the sun is filled with gaseous fire, it. and it occasionally you have explosions from that. But it's still burning, and I think that's how, um, unfortunately, the state of Israel has um, gotten used to being is is a is a country in a constant state of war, and this is kind of an explosion of war, an excursion into active war. Um, in Gaza, and and what their objective is, of course, is is uh like with all wars, there's a lot of different objectives. There's a government objective, which is to um, restore its standing with the Israeli people because the government abandoned those people. That October seventh should never have happened, and it did happen. It happened because the government let it happen. Whether they did that on purpose or not, they let it happen. They're going to be held accountable for that. So part of the war in Gaza is for the government to retain some governmental authority, some credibility. Um, Part of it is rage and revenge. And that is always a part of war. And I don't care what place in the world you have war and conflict, rage and revenge, anger and hatred come into play. So we've got plenty of that going on on both sides. And then you have... um, a longer-term objective, which is, uh, you know, we don't know exactly what it is. Uh, There are people, there are people in Israel and in the government of Israel that would like to see an expanded um, nation, uh, one that does not have to deal with Palestinians on two fronts. It would like maybe to deal with Palestinians on one front, and they would like all the fronts to be made smaller. And so um, this is an opportunity, certainly for them to uh, not just fight against civilians or or do a uh mass retaliation I forget what they call it you know it's it's obviously not part of the rules of of war but I think they are really looking to evacuate um, all Palestinians regardless of if they're Christian Muslim agnostic they want those folks uh, out and this is an opportunity to make it happen and I guess as of this morning or this weekend um, all of Gaza City was surrounded um so they are they came from, kind of the north, down the beach, semi-circled the city. They have got the city completely surrounded in Gaza City. That's in the north. So those folks will be moved out. Some, they'll be slaughtered, I'm sure. But a lot of them will be moved out, moved further south. And I think the plan is, can you hear that? Can you hear that fighter jet that flies over my house every day? <laughs> yeah, I got one of those. Um, anyway, they, I think they're looking to, I think the Israeli government uh And not just the government, but certain parties and certain people in Israel see this as a great opportunity to eliminate a hostile southern front, to eliminate Gaza as a Palestinian enclave.
0: In that regard, do do you think there's a similarity between um, 9-11 and the aftermath of 9-11 and the retaliation we're seeing Israel take on Gaza? Because I feel like after 9-11... The neoconservatives within the Bush administration said, this is our opportunity to do yeah, what we yeah. have always wanted to do with the project that's for a new American century. And it seems like that's what the Netanyahu regime is now doing in mm-hmm. Israel. They've taken advantage of the crisis. Sure. And all
1: governments try to take advantage of crises. There's no doubt about that. But this clearly has the hallmarks of a uh, uh, opportunistic uh situation that um, may or may not have been helped and pursued along and created uh, by the Israeli government to do something they've wanted to do for a long time. And again, um, very much like the neoconservative perspective after 9-11. In fact, you know, one of the more famous um, uh, Rumsfeld quotes, maybe not the most famous of, of Donald Rumsfeld quotes, but one of them was uh, right after 9-11, uh, he told the intelligence community, this was widely published in major papers. You know, I want you to scoop up everything you can find about Iraq. And is and in the intelligence, people said, well, Iraq wasn't behind this. And we kind of know who they were, mostly Saudis. We're not going after them, uh, but the guys in Afghanistan, so we can do that. But Rumsfeld wanted Iraq, and that was on our agenda. Big, uh, great uh, uh, objective that the neocons had. And certainly timing was important because just uh, a few months before the invasion of Iraq, or maybe a year, I'm not sure, it wasn't very long. Iraq had decided to go off of the petrodollar for sales of its of its oil. And um, you think 20 years ago, a couple more, yeah, I guess about 22 years ago, that's a while ago. Um, but we were still very much a petrodollar nation and we did not foresee the United States decision makers and the Federal Reserve and all the people that care about what makes our money work did not want, or did not expect, and we're not going to allow the petrodollar to collapse, which of course it it is collapsing, and and that's a fact. You can't stop history. Um, you know, our money isn't worth much. Uh, the the only thing it's linked to is is our control over the flow of uh, oil around the world, which is basically explains our entire Middle East policy. Uh, you know, the Carter Doctrine was. Saudi's oil, the oil of the Middle East is an American and a European and a global value and we're going to protect it. That's what Carter said. You know, I thought Carter was like the the green energy guy, you know, and the peacemaker, but but this is the Carter doctrine and and even Bush and all these neocons, they they totally like this. Now, you know, we pick on the neocons, we say, "Oh, well they're pro Israel." Well, yes, they are pro Israel, but um it's also about the financial survival of this country, uh which is kind of driven our policies in the Middle East. And yes, we use 9-11. What what Israel is doing on a smaller scale is is very much the same. In fact, I'm glad you asked this question in the context of oil, or maybe whether you did or not, we're talking about oil, because off of the Mediterranean coast of Gaza, what do you think they have?
0: There there is oil there, yes.
1: Oh my goodness, yes, there is. And, um, you know, legally, now there is such a thing as stealing oil you know slant drilling i, I remember the the uh the very first uh, uh iraq kuwait war which we took the side of kuwait you know iraq said um that the kuwaitis were slant drilling oil out of iraqi fields and we said no no that's not true that's not true of course it was true <laughs> this is beside the point truth truth is is very late to the game but uh but there is many there's many ways that israel might be able to uh profit from oil off of Gaza. But the easiest way with the least number of questions is if Gaza is simply um, part of Israel. And, you know, a lot of people are talking about this. I don't know how many of your audience sees it. I mean, you know, we all see different news, right? We all see different things. Maybe we're focused on certain things. But um, Netanyahu was at a meeting. I don't know if it was a UN meeting. I think it was, but it might not have been. This is a few weeks before uh, October 7th. And he held up a map. I think a lot of people know about this. He held up a map and there was no Palestine. It was all Israel. And um, of course, you know, for us, what do we care? You know, we don't, we're not paying attention to his map and we wouldn't take it personally. Americans would look at that and go, oh, whatever. You know, he just, it was just the color coding. You know, he didn't, he didn't mean anything by it. Right. But for the Palestinians and for the Arab countries that watch Israel closely on a day-to-day basis, and for those who understand how, um, Israel has carved up the Palestinian territories and how they do it, not just that they've done it, but the mechanisms they use to do it, which is um, very much a hostile uh, settler. You know, it's, it's driven by the settlers. It's backed up by the military. It's backed up politically. It is is—it is in conjunction with a uh, almost a national contempt for all things Palestinian, whether it's their culture the I don't know if you call it a race or not. There's certainly racism in Israel and it, it is not uh uh it's it's uh accepted. I think I mean we know we we can call it that. I think it's fair to say there's racism in Israel. They're racist against Arabs. And um so what they've done is is pretty ugly and they've been doing it for quite a long time. So when people that have that see themselves as victims of that, certainly Palestinians are victims of that, they see a map where they're erased, which what's left of what they have is completely erased, That's that could be angering. That could be something that, um, you know, the kind of thing that ignites passion. Uh, and Americans, we don't feel that. You know, we, we're pro-Israel, reflectively, reactively, pro-Israel, oh yeah, you know, whatever. Because we don't know. We don't live there. Um, we don't participate in the Israeli government. We don't participate in Hamas or the PLO government. We don't. You know, we don't. It's not our area. Um, so we we just have a superficial passion. But um, for the people that live there, that that have uh, invested their lives and their generations of lives there, um, very different. They have, they have a conflict.
0: One thing I wanted to ask you, this has come up with a few of my previous guests, including uh, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, uh, Ambassador mm-hmm. Chaz Freeman, and Professor Stephen Walt. Uh, a lot of my guests in the past few weeks have been saying that the U.S.-Israel special relationship Uh, is arguably uh, harmful or negatively impactful to both the United Mm -hmm. States and Israel. Do you think there's truth to that?
1: Absolutely. Um, And there's a couple of reasons for it. One is the relationship, the special relationship that we have, and we think of it very much as a defensive relationship. Certainly it is an aid relationship. It's a military relationship. But in terms of military and defense, we'd have no treaty with Israel. Okay? Okay. Um, years and years ago, a couple decades ago, we wanted to, hey, let's let's make a treaty of defense, a mutual defense treaty, kind of like a mini NATO thing with the United States and Israel. And the Israelis said no, because they didn't want to be controlled by the United States. Um, we have aid that we give them, $3.8 in military aid. There's other aid that goes on. There's um, that, That's an annual basis. This is expected aid. This aid has no strings attached to it. It can be used in any way or for any purpose by the Israelis. And that is very important to them. Because there's a great sensitivity in Israel, as there would be in any country, that if you take significant amount of help, aid, money, resources from another country, that you are, you know, you're owned by that country, that that country controls you. So we don't have a defense agreement with them. We have no um, ties or limitations on how they can use the uh, military aid that we provide to them or or even the the economic aid, for that matter, they can do what they want with it once it gets there. Kind of like Ukraine. <laughs> once it gets there, it's it's there. It's going to be used however they want. But so officially we do not have a uh, legal charter type of a relationship with them. Um, and that is that by itself. Is harmful to both countries. It's just like if you um, let's say you say, well, I want to rent a room to my buddy and you don't write any contract up and then, you know, your buddy's leaving stuff everywhere and you need that room for something else and you ask him to leave and he doesn't. Well, guess what? He probably doesn't really have to. You never wrote up an agreement. You have no control. You have no Um, shared declared interests that are mutually signed off by the two of you. And this is a problem when we deal with Israel, because we don't have that. We don't have what we have with every other country in the world, which is some sort of agreement on how we're going to handle difficulties and questions. And how do we go forward? How do we make changes? We don't have that. So it's all political. And that makes it dangerous for our country. It makes it um, very much an incentive for Israel to get what they want through manipulating the American political System, because why wouldn't they? I mean, they can't go to the State Department and negotiate a new deal. They have no deal. We don't have a contract with them. We don't have the treaty with them. So how they can how they maintain control is they buy and sell politicians, much as many other corporate interests and entities and sectors of the economy buy and sell politicians. So Israel then becomes a part of that. That's harmful to the United States. That's harmful to the American people. We think we elect people for this or that when actually their campaigns are funded by a foreign entity and by and their their votes and their positions are gonna be shaped to reflect loyalty to a foreign country harmful to the United States. Not necessarily good for Israel, but certainly not good for the United States. So no, there's a a lot of, uh, uh, you know, we've been very sloppy in our relationship with Israel and Israel has been sloppy in their relationship with us. uh, And it's harmed both of us. And, and, And if you ask any Israeli, they don't want to be told what to do by America. You ask any American, we don't want to be told what to do by an Israeli. So, you know, the American, the people of the two countries understand very well how it should be. The governments, on the other hand, don't.
0: One of the things that you're known for is blowing the whistle on the ways in which there was suppression and distortion of intelligence analysis by ideologues in the Bush administration. And, you know, I think that's an important thing to talk about right now, because Two weeks before the Hamas attack, I don't know if you you heard about this, but um, Elliot Abrams, the convicted Iran contra criminal, was talking about how Hamas was focusing its operations on the West Bank, not Gaza. This mm. is two weeks before the uh, attack that came from Gaza, and I think people like Elliot Abrams are ideologically motivated, and they give you know bad advice to the foreign policy establishment. It's bad intelligence mm-hmm. analysis. Can you talk about? how we get this sort of distortion of intelligence analysis from people who have, um, a sort of ideological bent and the dangers of that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, you know, intelligence is, uh, produced at, you know, the lower levels and all the various data, some unclassified, some classified that gets put together and analyzed by people who on the intelligence professional side are not generally ideologues. They are technicians in a way they are, um, People that are trying to make sense and put it in words that can be uh, understood by the leadership, and then the leadership makes a decision. And they and the leadership, of course, in an, in in most any country has an ideology, and our elected leaders have ideologies. But the problem is that the intelligence producers are so far away from they're so far they're shielded um, and kept at a distance from our political leadership. But who is close to the political leadership? It's the ideologues. And um, they, uh, whether they access, uh, you know, and we have one of the big sources of this information from the Pentagon when I was there, and certainly the same way now, is um, folks that uh, are appointed, political appointees. So they are ideologues inside of all of the government agencies, not just the military and intelligence agencies, but all of them. And uh, those folks kind of serve as a conduit to take information that they have and uh, give it extra weight when it really shouldn't have extra weight. And also, they're generally the ones who leak it to the to a friendly media. So you have information that um, is really a lot of it's half-baked, um, but it serves an ideological purpose. And it gets to the media and it gets to the pol- decision makers through informal means in many ways and uh that shapes the policy. And really, Americans, the average American is in no way, shape or form able to uh, serve as a watchdog. we it is not for us to serve as a watchdog for all this stuff. We don't have time for that. Nobody has time for it. Um, so we are kind of left out of it. Uh, and, and we rely on uh, what? we rely on Congress. We could rely on a media if we had an objective media that that really, you know when they got one leak from one guy they actually went to the intelligence people and said can you can you give us some some insight on this um we don't have that we have very few reporters left anymore uh today that that can do that seymour hersh is one right and and we're seymour hirsch he's at substack he's not at the new yorker he's at substack because the mainstream media cannot tolerate that they are political animals themselves so uh yeah we have uh it's it's a problem that uh you know unfortunately the American people really can't solve the problem uh, it the only way to solve it is the system crashes okay um or uh, there's some sort of revolution or refusal to fight a war that we have been entered into because of these ideologues and they certainly there's no doubt that uh the, the government uh politicians uh, from Biden on down want war. I don't care what they say they want war we don't we do not have we have four, carrier groups. T- uh, two in the Red Sea, I guess, or the the Straits, uh, two in the Mediterranean. They just posted a Twitter photo of, of, a, of a nuclear sub that just arrived into the Eastern Med. And this is all like uh, they want war. And Biden wants to be elected. What better way to be elected than to be a wartime president? That is uh, very harmful to the world and to our nation. But um, from a political perspective, he looks at the numbers and he goes, oh, a wartime president. Yeah. If I if I don't die, maybe I could get elected as a wartime president. This, they, they, There is no statesmanship. In fact, I'm sorry, I'm going on here, but I have to say one thing. Uh, Blinken is in the news. Uh, of course, he's always in the news, but he's in the news because he was talking to uh, Arab countries, supposedly trying to calm people down over there. And, and he said, well, I've told Israel that they should drop smaller bombs on Gaza. Now, the, the absence of self-awareness there is, is appalling. But um, And it's almost funny if it wasn't, if it wasn't tragic. Um, but this is the kind of thing we're dealing with. We do not have statesmen. Our country is interested in war. War is its business. Uh, war keeps the political machine going. And American people have very little control over our government. Because every president in my lifetime who has been elected, and even before that, have always been elected on a peace platform. I will keep us out of the war. I'm not going to interfere with other people. That's what Americans like. And I don't care what party it was. They all, the winner was the guy who most explained and most had you believe that that's what they were about. And in fact, every one of them was a liar. Every one of them uh, ended up serving the state, which wants war and not serving the people who do not want war.
0: If you could, uh, because I do have younger listeners that may be unfamiliar Mm -hmm. uh, with certain aspects of your story, Uh, maybe a brief overview of what you saw uh, with regards to the Office of Special Plans and these figures like uh, Bill Lutie, who was the retired Navy captain that figures into your story. Mm -hmm. Could you you explain what
1: happened? Well, yeah. I mean, I was working uh, in the Pentagon. I was in 1918 or 19 years of military service. I was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, and I was working in a staff position at the Office of Secretary of Defense. Um, I got moved over from uh, the uh, Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa section into Near East South Asia, which which looks at North Africa and all of the Middle East. Of course, Iran and Iraq. And I worked with the folks similar to me who were working on, they were the country heads, basically the desks for those countries. And they would look at intelligence and look at data and produce papers and recommendations and updates and that kind of thing up the chain to Rumsfeld and um, that kind of thing. And we did have counterparts in the state department. We had counterparts in among the intelligence communities. Um, so, uh, you know, we're, you know, we're networking, we're doing our jobs. And what it turned out to what I saw when I started working for Bill Luty was um, a total control over the narrative. That wasn't a, It wasn't, you know, no longer were we looking at stuff to see what was actually happening, but we were simply to relay what we were told about what was happening. And you can check that out. If you worked in that place, like anybody, if you work in in the office where it does the money, you can count the money. Well, that's where basically we were. We were in the office that looked at intelligence and we also looked at the narrative we were being given to to include and to uh, push out as if it was fact. And it did not jive with the intelligence. It was actually a ideological, objective-based uh, narrative, and the objective was we needed to have a war <laughs> in Iraq, and uh, this was the reason. And this and this is you know it didn't matter what the truth was. It's we're selling a war. Well, I didn't join up the military to sell wars. Um, you know, nobody wants to fight wars, but certainly if you have to fight one, you'll do it. But we certainly, people do not wear the uniform so that they can convince the American people that a war is in their best interest, when in fact, that is a lie. And in this case, it was a lie. We were not threatened by Iraq in any way. But of course, most Americans at that time, not the young people, because they would have to watch old videos, you know, but at the time of the 2001, 2002, early 2003, You would have people like the secretary of state, uh, the president, vice president, um, all kinds of people, secretary of defense, getting on television and telling lies, absolute lies to the American people. Now, it struck me that these were lies because I did not expect the organization that I was a part of to be, you know, in that role of lying to the American people. Um, and yet that's exactly what they do. And, you know, we, we say, oh, well, there's classified information. You know, we have to keep that close hold. They were using classified information to pump up their lies as if classified information, some of it wasn't even true, but it was still classified. They were broadcasting that to add credence to their lies. And most Americans feel maybe they're smarter now, but you know we we used to think classified information was classified for a reason it was national security information it had to be very special very very true you know very uh, fundamental and in fact you know the classification system is out of control and it's really now just a it's window dressing for oh this is really something you should pay attention to because it's classified and i mean not to jump into trump or anything but you know classified documents in his house i mean my god anything and its brother become classified nowadays. So um it's not like it's national security stuff. And if it is, we broke the we broke the rule back in the time we invaded Iraq and building up to that war because so much stuff that they said was classified. And even we would see it as marked top secret would then be in the newspaper. Why? Because it helped sell a war. That's what governments do. I didn't think that before then and I did I came to I learned that as part of my uh, experience the last few years in the Pentagon.
0: I mean, essentially what you're saying, and this, this is very interesting to me, is that within the Pentagon, there was basically this apparatus uh, or what could be called a, a disinformation organ of the government working yes. to sort of spew fake news and disinformation and distortion of intelligence. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. It's It was a, a disinformation apparatus. Um, particular to the Pentagon, but there was also a little bit, to lesser extent, the State Department. Um, to a lesser extent, the Defense Intelligence Agency, which prided itself in actually doing intelligence work, but they too were co-opted. CIA, of course, heavily, heavily co-opted. Um, many of the others uh, of the other intelligence agencies were were co-opted. But I'll tell you. Um, we see this in all government agencies. You know, it's We're concerned about it when it's the ones that are nuclear armed do it, because this is a big problem for our country if we get in a war that we lose. Because if this country loses a war, which it could well do, um, life will be unrecognizable for Americans. But other agencies do the same thing. And I, you mentioned um, your audience is progressive. Well, I'll talk a little bit about um, the FDA and the CDC and COVID. Um, there were many things that were stated as truth and propagandized by the CDC and the FDA early on and by Pfizer, that a year later, 18 months later, two years later, were reversed, were were corrected. Some were corrected publicly and some were corrected privately in the hopes that no one would notice. Why were things that were not sure to be true said? Why were they, why was this big, you know, well, obviously they had to justify a shutdown. They had to have people scared to, to obey. But is that really all it takes? You want people to obey so you can make up stories? Well, all government agencies do this to some extent. And so if you know people say, well, war doesn't touch me. Well, health policy touches you. They propagandize that. Pick your agency, pick your government agency, because they all do this to some extent. They all propagandize and push for their own agendas. Um, and rarely are those agendas uh, related to, oh, don't worry, things are good, you don't need us. No, always the agendas are: you need us, you need us to grow, you need to increase our budget, and and with the Pentagon and the wars. I mean, we talk about the military industrial complex. What is its agenda? It simply wants to make profit. If they could, if if there were a war with two sides, oh, I don't know, like the Arab war against Israel, we pay both. We'll we'll sell arms to both sides. Are we doing that now? Yes, we are doing that now. Um. So this is—they're just out to, you know, they pursue their own interest, which is to grow, which is to access taxpayer dollars for purposes that can be uh, sold to the American people or sold to the Congress. So it's it's it's—we uh, have to be not cynical. You don't want to be cynical, but we do need to be smart about assessing what our government tells us at any given moment, whether it's about war, whether it's during peacetime. Um, Pick your government agency, please. Take everything they say with the, with a grain of salt.
0: That's what I learned. Before we close out, uh, I wanted to ask you two more questions. The first is um, with regards to that period that I grew up in when I became familiar with your work, the Iraq War, because the the war on terror. I don't think people realize that really is what you know sort of politicized mm-hmm. me, and it was it was deeply traumatizing to a lot of young people in, in dealing with the craziness of the TSA and just the sort of draconian oh, yeah. measures that came into place. Uh, do you see a connection between the crisis of today and uh, everything that was done in those years? Uh, do, do you think there's a history leading up to October 7th and now what is unfolding with the bombing of Gaza? Um. Well,
1: in terms of of Israel's own Evolution. This is definitely part of a long process that Israel has, and their process concerns land and resources. It concerns how do you have a Zionist state and still call it a democracy if at some point over half of your citizenry is not Jewish? Um, This is a big, big problem for them. They haven't solved that problem. They don't know how to solve it because they're not speaking honestly about what it is they're trying to do. So that's a problem. But I can say for for our country and our enthusiasm for Israel and it's whatever wars that Israel's in, our enthusiasm for uh, Ukraine, the lost cause of Ukraine, honestly, and we've caused that. That's on us. You know, Ukraine has lost, I don't know how many of its people uh, in numbers and refugees. I think its population has been halved. From what it was only a few years ago, that's on the Americans. That you know, Americans are like, oh no, they're, they're 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 a vanguard against Russia. Uh, it's the best investment that uh, Lindsey Graham ever made. You know, um, no, no, the loss of those people, and the loss of territory, and the collapse of their economy, and the destruction of their environment, and we've we've helped with all of that. In fact, we have been the main vector in making all of that happen. That's on Americans. And uh, but what do what do Americans think? See, Americans think, oh, no, this is a good fight. We want to support them. Why? Because our government has put a lot of resources into convincing the American people that they must do this or that, and they must support this or that. And so um, on that regard, uh, the Patriot Act, which of course came on the heels of 9-11, it was a huge passage of a huge law, created the Homeland Security uh, Department, the, the Department of Homeland Security, Homeland Defense, I guess, it was a monster package of legislation. They had two copies or two or three copies, I think two for the House, one for the Senate. Nobody got a chance to read it and they forced them all to vote on it. And And only one or two people voted against it. Certainly, Ron Paul voted against it because um, he believed that you should read documentation before you before you make it uh, into a uh, federal uh, law. But what what did Why was it so important to have the Patriot Act? And it's been sustained. Uh, there's a few parts that were unconstitutional. So they, they changed uh, the law and did some minor tweaking so it would pass. But that document, that kind of law, was about everything that we see today. It was about the TSA. It was about banking controls. It was about everything that has simply ratcheted more and more control by the American government over Americans control of their information, control of their activities, control of their uh, travel, control of their spending, control of their political activities, whatever that they do, because that's the real agenda is control. And our government cannot freely fight wars or get other people to fight wars and support these wars. Ultimately, they can't do that if the American people don't support it. But they have invested hugely in controlling and shaping the popularity or the the line, the storyline, the narrative, uh, that's our government has spent a huge amount of our tax dollars to simply turn us into controllable sheep so that when the dog barks here, the herd goes the other direction. Um, and this is quite tragic because, um, you know, we think of ourselves as being very free in America. And certainly we might not be perfectly free, but we consider ourselves one of the freest nations on the planet. And that is not true simply not true uh, we are enslaved to our government as much as the Chinese people are to Communist China as much as uh the Soviet Union citizens were enslaved to the uh the uh you know the Soviet Union's government which
0: no longer exists by the way the last thing I wanted to touch upon was I wanted to talk a little bit about your thoughts on on how Israel was is currently dealing with Gaza how the U.S. Mm -hmm. is supporting it, because, I mean, the big problem for me, and I think we saw this with uh, the resignation of Josh Paul at the State Mm -hmm. Department, it seems like there's no plan, you know, and if the (laughs) plan is let's eradicate Hamas, I mean, what is that? What's the plan to do that? It seems like there's Mm -hmm. no planning. And also, you know, I I consider myself kind of a lefty, but I agree with Pat Buchanan when he says uh, every time they bomb Gaza, They're creating a new generation of terrorists because those young kids that get bombed see what happens to their parents and their little sister, Mm -hmm. and they decide, I'm going to become one. I'll become a terrorist. You know, so I I just want you to talk about the the sort of crazy up is down, down is up uh, way Mm -hmm. in which these wars are conducted.
1: Yeah, well, it it is true. And your observation that there's no strategy, absolutely on target. There is no strategy. Our government tends to react and the people in government are extremely ideologically uh, shaped and oriented. So uh, they have certain things they'd like to see. They aren't strategists. They are not uh, uh, people that look at history and and put you know two and two together. They're not psychiat- you know, they're not psychiatrists or psychologists. They don't really have a great deal of understanding of human nature. They are just political appointees and politicians doing the best they can on a day-to-day basis. They are putting out small fires. That's their day-to-day life. And so there is no strategy. And you can clearly see that with Ukraine and you can clearly see it obviously with what we're doing uh, very both aggressively and hesitantly at the same time in terms of Israel. Now, what you said about growing the next generation of terrorists, um, there is absolutely no doubt that that happens, but there's something else that happens when you kill people uh, indiscriminately and uh, people become accustomed to death, <clears throat> death for no reason. What happens is life becomes cheap. So it's not just that they become enraged and they they say, "Well, I'm going to get even because because a Palestinian can go to another country and become wealthy and be and get even that way, right? He can live a better life." What do they say? Live your best life, right? But but when life is cheap, when when murder is all around you, and rage takes over. That is precisely how you get people that will take extraordinary risks that will, you know, the, the idea of a suicide bomber. You know, we say, oh, we don't have very many of those in America. Why do certain countries have them? Because life is cheap. And if you've grown up that way, when you've seen it be made cheap because of constant war and, and a, no respect at all provided to um, any of your people, your relatives, your culture, your language, you're treated terribly all the time life becomes cheap and um honestly the israelis know this better than than anyone um they have been responsible themselves just as a nation we've done certainly a lot of it we've created terrorists everywhere we bomb there's no doubt about it but israel has done it on its own as well in their immediate neighborhood certainly among the palestinians so um they know well that this is the factor and i think unfortunately this is why a, a significant minority Of Israelis simply want, and they will support their government if the government does this, they want to wipe Gaza clean, take over that territory, and repopulate it. And if you remember, um, prior to, uh, I don't know, 2012, I forget when it was, you know, Gaza had many settlers there. Many Israeli settlers were there um, in the midst of Gaza. That was uh, against the UN rules. It was against the global rules and no one agreed to it. It just happened. It was done by the Israeli government. They did pull those folks out. Well, those folks that got pulled out are angry and frustrated and ready to storm Gaza again because they feel that, oh, well, we had something and then it was taken away. So um, this is a terrible thing. And of course, our aid, we're aiding both sides in a way. And we're, we're totally not on board with uh, the Israeli uh, doctrine of Gaza, whichever that is. So it's not clear even what, what they're doing, but certainly they're not telling our leadership what they want to do. They don't, Israel doesn't trust the United States. Uh, we shouldn't trust it, but they certainly wisely do not trust us.
0: I also just wanted to add to that, and I'm sorry for, for keeping you a few mm-hmm. minutes over, but no, you no, know, that's great. I view a lot of these things through the lens of what's called blowback. And I, I know you're familiar with the term, but for listeners that aren't, you know, uh, there's this idea that there are ramifications to policies that we make. You know, uh, you support the Mujahideen, <laughs> and then years later, you get attacked by, uh, you know, Al Qaeda on 9/11. And I will never forget when Ron Paul was uh, running for president, and he said, you know, 9/11 was a result of blowback. And the first thing Rudy Giuliani said is, "How dare you, Mister Paul? You need to apologize. <laughs> I was the mayor on 9/11." And you know, it wasn't like he was saying Ron Paul was not saying you know, people deserve to die in the towers that day. No, he, wasn't he, saying he was that. not saying that at all. Uh, so do you think people need to understand what blowback is? Do you think there needs to be more of an awareness of how that works? Sure. Maybe you can talk about well, they that. They absolutely
1: do. They absolutely do. And again, I've been concerned about this. So, And many people have in terms of Ukraine, because the weapons that have been flowing into Ukraine, very many dangerous weapons, many of them are making their way onto uh, the international black market. Um, so we are giving weapons that aren't controlled and they could be in the hand of enemies and they could float back around and be used against Americans. So there's that aspect. But um, certainly when, you know, for, it's the law of physics for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And we somehow think that our policies are exempt from that law, but they're not. So if you treat people kindly, that doesn't guarantee they'll be kind back to you. But there there is, you know, if, if you abuse them, if you uh, do things that are clearly in their eyes unjust um, and certainly bombing wedding parties and um, just any number of things that we've done to prop up uh, politicians that we liked, that the people themselves were tortured by you know i mean are you have you've probably studied a little bit about our central american history in the 60s and 70s and 80s you know what what was that we we constantly put in place uh dictators and torturers and and non-democrats uh people that were just rotten to the core and put them in charge and kept them in charge of their people and they destroyed their countries and eventually revolution after revolution uh, came about, but many ha- people had to die and huge loss of resources and, and uh, quality of life, terrible things. That's blowback. It, if you make a bad policy, you know, and you don't even think about what the ramifications will be, they will be bad. And you can just count on that. But I don't know why our our leadership is not so concerned about it. And it may be, It may be because we are a democracy and we say, oh, our government will change my there'll be a new president. We can blame it on that guy or that gal. You know, we can we can blame it on somebody else. And we really have to think short term. And we look at a guy like we look like like Xi Jinping in China. He's been there for quite a long time. Putin has been there for quite a long time. But, you know, if you're intending to be in charge of a country for a long time, you're, you're more sensitive to issues like blowback. And we aren't in this country. We think in terms of uh, four-year timeframes and that everything starts over in four years. But that's not reality. It doesn't. Uh, And, of course, the deep state is totally fine with it because uh, the more war, the more money is being made.
0: I just wanted to add to that real quick. I'm glad you mentioned the sort of uh, South and Central America and whatnot, because I think conservatives really need to think about that. because I've mm-hmm. said to people that are conservative, you know, if you don't like Fidel Castro, for instance, and the, the Castro regime, you know, remember, it was the US that aided and abetted the sort of military junta of uh, General Batista, you know, that mm-hmm. was eventually overthrown. Absolutely. So, you know, in ways, the dictators we've supported have actually led to leftist revolutions later on the conservatives uh, don't like. That's right. That's absolutely right. Um, I
1: think also to our politicians and our uh, State Department people, they live in a fantasy world. Um, They think that the world is like a chessboard and it's very clean. And if you take somebody's pawn, it stays taken. You know, I have your pawn, he's off the board. But in real life, it doesn't work that way. Uh, It's not a chess game. It is a a very, very complex, uh, ever-changing of evolutionary type system that that you deal with, and um, if you're playing chess, and the whole world is is playing rapid, you know, the river, the you know, flooding, that's totally different. And we wonder why we're not coping well. We're wondering why the board doesn't look the same, or or we we thought we won, but really we lost, and we wonder, well, how could we be so wrong? Well, it's because we're not looking at reality, and we're not recognizing the people around the world as equal to all of us, you know, and this is an American value. We say people are equal. Regardless of our long history of inequality, it is a value system in this country that, that people are human beings, they have natural rights, granted by their creator, they're equal. We look at people in Africa, we look at people all over the world, and they, uh, and China, and we say, these people are smart, they deserve to have uh, their countries, they deserve to have what they want, they deserve prosperity, they deserve peace. This is American value. But it's not the value of our government. Our government does not share that value. And uh, we have a big problem in this country because we're, it's, this, this this dichotomy will be dealt with at some point. And the longer it goes on before it's being dealt with, okay, uh, the worse it's going to be when we finally come to terms with it. And I don't think people, people really understand how difficult it was for Russia when the Soviet Union, not just Russia, but all of the, Russian satellites, when the Soviet Union collapsed, when their government, which was a very socialistic government, the government's hands, they owned every factory, they owned all means of production. When that government collapsed, lives were turned upside down. The the lifespan of Russians dropped by 10 points, 10 years, the average lifespan, huge social problems, huge health problems, okay? It is not easy when your government fails, and our government is failing, and Americans are not the least bit ready for it. Um, We think, oh, we'll just vote in some new people. It doesn't work that way. And anybody, if I've lived on this planet for 63 years, voting in new people doesn't seem to work. There's another problem here. And I think it is that the values that Americans have are not reflected
0: in the state. Well, I wanna thank you again, Karen Kwiatkowski for coming on parallax use. How can my listeners keep up with your work? You write, um, Lou Rockwell still, is there anything else?
1: Yeah, I, I do, uh, everyone, when I do write an article every couple of weeks or so, sometimes more frequently, um, it's going to be at Lou Rockwell. And, um, I'm on with judge Napolitano now, uh, on Tuesdays. So there, there will be that opportunity. Um, and we should talk about current events and things like that. And, and I would encourage, um, progressives, conservatives, libertarians, any kind of people to take in a broad amount of information. I mean, if you're going to if you're going to read American media, you really need to read um uh, some non-European, non-American media. Balance it out because all the medias, you know, none of it's really objective, but you really need to get wide amount of sources uh to to make your own decisions because um the world is filled with highly intelligent, kind, loving people who want to live their lives peacefully just like we do so we got to get to know them
0: well that does it for this edition of parallax views i hope you enjoyed my conversation with lieutenant colonel karen Kwiatkowski, and you'll consider supporting me on patreon at patreon.com slash parallax views one more time that's patreon.com slash parallax views and with that being said until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Jeralax Michael. To Parallax J. Views with Michael. The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit it. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. Right? So, you know, we have to
1: confront the problem.